Hey folks, it's Marvin Cash, the host of the Articulate Flower, back with another Fly Lines Essential with Mac. This time we're talking about cores and coatings. How you doing, Mac Brown? I'm doing great. How you doing, Marvin? As always, I'm just trying to stay out of trouble. And, uh, you know, last time we covered fly line mechanics, and this time uh, we thought it'd be a good idea to kind of do an overview of cores and coatings. And I guess, you know, when I think about fly line cores, I think about basically monocore lines and then you know, usually it's Daycron or something like that that they extrude that PVC or coating on. Uh, you want to, you know, kind of tell folks kind of how that works? Yeah, yeah. I mean, what what happens is depending on on temperatures. So you have like tropical conditions where where you want to have, uh, you know, it kind of blows around like a slinky on the bow. So a lot of those tropical lines, they'll use um, a mono solid core, and then. Uh, the ones we use in colder weather, they're actually like the Chinese finger trick. A lot of them are actually mono that's that's braided, like a really fine mono that's braided like the Chinese finger trick, you know, hollow inside. Mm-hmm. And and that's usually what the, the, the inside cores. And then we also have the solid mono quite a bit for cold water as well. When we're talking about any kind of a, a sinking line, they, they put all those tungsten impregnated lines usually on a solid mono core. Yeah, got it. And I guess the real trick, right, is that, you know, when it's hot, uh, those coatings, you know, get soft like everything else that's made out of plastic when it gets really, really hot and a boat deck's hot. And so you need that extra kind of stiffness in the core. Otherwise, your fly line would collapse and it would be incredibly hard to cast. That's right. And then, yeah, and then the the coating itself, you know, will be be made specifically for warmer temps or colder temps as well, because a lot of the Colder weather lines in, in the tropics would get like really gummy and sticky, you know, not sticky so much through the eyelets, but sticky on the rod blank. That's what really happens, you know, as it goes out, like when you shoot line, mm-hmm. it's the rod itself that, that really is the brakes. You know, if you got a line that's getting gummy, it's not just the little tiny friction that's on those eyelets. And um, I learned that, you know, when we when did all those line studies at Western and we would shoot lines through uh photographic time gates and we had oscilloscopes and strobe high-speed cameras with a strobe light and we could see how many times it was touching blanks going out and that was a really really interesting you know thing for me because i didn't know it and it wasn't taught in the industry nobody told you how that worked you know before so it was kind of fun having all those toys in the in the materials lab to play with yeah, and so, I mean, a lot of times you'll see those fly lines referred to as tropical lines, and I, or they'll label them cold water. But I think the place that I think that this comes up the most is someone who's maybe traditionally, um, you know, maybe a trout fisherman goes down to the Bahamas and takes some kind of line that's not tropical. Or the other time I kind of see it is, you know, if you're a, you know, you're a smallmouth angler this time of year, and it's, you know, in the 90s, um, kind of hard to make it work with a, a cold water line. That's right. Yeah, just they take them to those different extremes, and yeah, they don't. They just don't perform the same. And and it's really really interesting, like those cores with um, the different plastics. That's what um, you know. SA before, you know, they had all the access to the subsidiary with with 3M. So then you have like the best chemical engineers in the world. So when they wanted to work on different recipes for those for those coatings they had like some of the best chemists in the world to be advisors on that you know so that's what i think that really separated separated you know over over time just they could go and say hey we want this and they'd come up with a 
a recipe that would that would work for those different climate changes. Yeah. And I think the coolest thing, you know, and it's not just um, SA now, but, you know, they when they put a coating in their line, it's actually not on the surface. It's like built into the line all the way through. Um, and so, you know, when you use those cleaning pads and kind of micro abrade that line, you're actually bringing that coating back to the surface. So it's a little bit different than, you know, those the old days where you had to, you know, wash your fly line and then, you know, grease it and your line was greasy with mucilin or something like that. Oh yeah, like that AST technology is really, really amazing. Those little, those little pads that you drag it through. That's really. <laughs> I look back when I was a kid, just with all of the buckskin. You know, it used to be like the classic buckskin, double taper or weight forwards, and it's like, my gosh, fly lines have have jumped leaps and bounds over the years, and now they're um, they're just they're just so much, so much better for longevity as well. You know. Yeah, I mean, if you take care of them, um, they do last a long time. And I guess, you know, one of the other things and from a kind of a coding perspective is we, I mean, it's been a while. I think maybe, gosh, it was probably the shark skin lines by SA. And I think maybe, uh, you know, Airflow did the ridgeline lines. But you want to talk a little bit about the difference between like, you know, why you would want a smooth fly line versus why you'd want a textured fly line? Yeah, that that was also at Western. That's where that actually started to come from early on. I think is uh, we did a lot of that with dropping a. I forget how heavy it was. It was measured in grams, but we dropped it off of a ten-story building over and over with all the different fly lines that were manufactured back in the '90s, early '90s. And then I got to thinking a lot of the boats, a lot of the race boats up here in kayaking, for like Olympic paddle sports, you know, through through time gates, which is that was in you know, the paddle world for a long time, like on the hulls of the boats, they started dimpling the boats. And and then what happened, what happened with that is, you know, the same thing as dimpling on a golf ball. So I started thinking, well, we were doing all these line studies, dropping these weights off and measuring how fast they'd fall through photographic gates. And I kept thinking, well, if these things had a coating and were ridged, what it would do is prevent one for form drag you know, skin drag on the fly line as it turns over, but more importantly, the, the the line slap that we talked rod, you know, the rod blank, that's what was putting the brakes on. So there was a lot of lines that we tested and they were all over the spectrum. They weren't even close. So you'd think the rate of gravity is the same, right? So you got all these different lines and you'd have some lines falling through much faster than others. But then I realized right then it could still be better if they had, had texture. So when those early textured lines come out, now there's ridge lines, you know, the shark skin was a very early, early um, prototype of those when they came out and they got popular for the saltwater scene. But it makes a world of difference also in, in just reducing the amount of, of line slap onto the rod blank that was, you know, helping to stop the overall line speed. And of course, all the, all these distance records got shattered once that stuff came out because it, it was the way to go. When you look at the world events, you know, in, um, uh, the last few years in Milan, England, and then Norway this last year. I mean, they're, they're way further now than they've ever been with the five-weight, you know, distance competition. We'll just pick one thing because there's a whole lot of things in a world event that they do, but let's just look at one specific thing because a five-weight is kind of the holy grail, you know, in North America that for the average, you know, person that's going to fly fish. That's what most of them start out with, a nine-foot five-weight. Well, now those distances are up, up to around 144 feet. Marvin, in the old days, that, that same distance before those came about would have been in the low 130s. 
So that's that's the difference it's made. Yeah. So, you know, when you talk about rod slap, you're talking about there being, you know, effectively less surface area of the fly line to touch the blank, right? So that's how that helps that problem. You know, how does the dimpling or the texturing of the fly line help the loop unroll? I don't know. I mean, that's an interesting question because like a golf ball, I mean, yeah, they did it on that to help it, you know, maintain its spin in the air. Um, You know, that's hard to prove. I mean, I don't know. I mean, because we can't, it's hard to separate that when we look at these distance casts, like in the worlds now and think, okay, like Norway had some really impressive, at that tournament there, there was a Norwegian that threw 144 feet, which is just, you know, that really, that really shocked me like for a five way because i've watched that jump in the last 30 years and it's part of it's the casting casting technique i think there's a lot of there's a lot of casters that are you know better better world-class casters and techniques changed in casting as well but i also think a lot of it's gear related and and so i don't know i think the gear is, is a big part of it as well is is the lines are better so so I don't know. I mean, I just look back as a kid where everything was either you bought a double taper, you bought a 30 foot weight forward. That's all that was available when I was a kid. And I'm, I'm 60. So when I say a kid, that was a long time ago, but <laughs> I mean, there wasn't a whole lot of choices back then, Marvin, is what I'm trying to say. You, you either bought a buckskin 30 footer or you bought a uh, 90 footer double tapers. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And so, you know, if you're a, if you're a consumer and you walk in a fly shop, you know, what should you just, what should be the decision point for you? If you're just like, well, gee, should I get a textured line or should I get a smooth line? Um, I would get a textured line. <laughs> I like the texture a lot better and, and it's getting harder to, harder to find. Like the, the DT lines are, are, you know, almost obsolete. I mean, because there's only a couple of them made now, but I mean, I don't, I don't really understand why that is to be honest with you i don't know you'd have to would have to ask the industry that answer but um i don't know why that is but i'm still pretty partial to the dt lines it's like steve steve rajev told me back years ago close to 30 years ago he says if you want to play the you know for distance on the saltwater flats or distance just to improve your casting he says hold a 90 foot double taper at the backing and learn to learn to false cast that and it's like you can't really do that with a Wait forward with 30, 40 feet ahead, can you? So the more rare they become, the harder that is to even practice that because there's not many of them made, you see. Yeah, but you would generally prefer to have a texture line over a smooth line? I would, yeah. I think they're, I think they're superior for when you shoot them, when you let go, you know. I'm, and it's hard to prove what it's doing in the air. I, I do think it, it helps. Yeah, you ask me what I think, does it help or hurt? But absolutely it helps it, but how much would be very hard to prove because, you know, for the other factors, <laughs> the, the cast, it's hard to have the same exact consistent cast for anybody, even a world-class caster. They're going to hit, you know, so many good ones and there'll be some that they wish were better, but nobody's, nobody's like a robot and sit there and sit, can sit there and throw all of them the same. Yeah. And I guess, you know, the one thing too, with the texture lines is you just kind of have to keep in the back of your mind that you're going to probably have to clean them more frequently, right? Because they generally, particularly if you're fishing, um, in dirty water, uh, or scummy water, um, cause they just have a tendency to pick up more stuff. That's right. It's, that's right. And all fly lines, I mean, yeah, cause the meniscus up in the water film, that's where all the contaminants are. And I learned this back when I got out of college, like hiking the AT and I did the Pacific trail. Um, most of the contaminants, a lot of people don't know this, but when you fill a water bottle up and you're backpacking and you want to get the cleanest water, you never want to scoop that up off the surface. The surface is where most of the contaminants, because naturally as things fall out, 
the meniscus holds most of the contaminants. So you fill your water bottle up, you know, six inches a foot underneath the water surface. So all the dirt, like even on any river in the world, all the all the stuff that you're wanting to keep off your line is actually up there in the film. So you just want to give it a good cleaning. Just, uh, you know, paper towel, ivory soap, water, just clean it. Clean it first before you're going to, you know, use it. And I, I find that to be one of the biggest things over the years in the water guiding with people is people don't really ever clean their line. You really need to clean your line every time you go. Yeah. And it's pretty easy to do. I mean, there's some videos I'll see if I can find the link and drop it in the show notes. But you know, if you just take a, a wash bucket and put a little ivory soap in it, don't want to use dishwashing detergent or anything harsh. Don't use car detergent or anything like that. Cause it'll literally pull all the oils right. out of your fly line. But if you do that, it's an easy way to wash it. Right. And then you just rinse the bucket out multiple times and pull it, pull it through an old undershirt and you're ready to go. So um, yeah, that's it. I mean, that's how I do it. Well, that's a huge difference for shooting too. Like what you were talking about shooting a minute ago, mm-hmm. a dirty line, a good caster. I promise you this, a good caster can tell instantly in the first shoot that this line is totally trashed with fill. You follow me? Mm-hmm. Like, cause if it doesn't shoot, they know it's not them. And so they know right away this line's dirty, which is really common. So then they clean it and all of a sudden 20, 30 feet shoots further just because they cleaned it. And so that's that's what I think a lot of the people that fish that don't clean their lines don't realize that there's all this potential in shootability just because they're not cleaning their lines. Yeah. But it's it's hugely important. Absolutely. And, you know, folks, we love questions at the Articulate Fly, and we're doing this series very similar to the way we did the one we did with uh, Jason Randall on Nymphing. You know, DM us your questions. Uh, we're going to collect them at the end of the series. We're going to have a Q&A episode. And the way it's going to work is if you submit a question, easiest way to do it is to DM us on Instagram. But you can hit us up on any of the social media platforms or shoot us an email. If we, uh, if you send in a question, we're going to enter you in a drawing for a signed copy of Mac's book, Casting Angles. And then if we use your question on the Q&A episode, uh, we're going to enter you in a drawing. You're going to get to pick uh, the, the essay line of your choice. So kind of a kind of a cool thing and, you know, really appreciative of the folks at SA for supporting the series. And I think the next topic, Mac, we're going to actually start breaking down the different types of fly lines like wait forward and all that sort of stuff. So that ought to be a, a really good episode. And, um, you know, folks, if you haven't yet, you should subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss them. And uh, even though it's warm, you know, probably where you are, it might be a good idea to either fish early or late for trout or leave them alone and go chase bluegill. But uh, you owe it yourself to get out there and catch a few. Tight lines, everybody. Tight lines, Mac Brown. Tight lines, Marvin. Tight lines, Marvin.